Haunted house, haunted mind. Welcome back. I have a question for you. Have you ever had the feeling of being watched, but nobody's there? Listen, here's how episode one ended. For a time, the house was quieter. The Lama's ritual seemed to alleviate the stressful situation. But soon, the terror was back. Banging and thumping. Strange noises, bumps and thumps in the middle of the night. Disturbances of every sort. And fear. And the beginning of an investigation into what haunted me and my house. Coming up in a few moments, part two. At the end of the podcast, I'll tell you how to download chapter two of the ebook serial. It fills in the blanks and the things I could not have known when I first told my story 20 years ago. And now, part two Haunted House, Haunted Mind. My wife, Anne, picks up the story. Well, the decision came to move when I realized that there was just too many incidents. The kids were being affected. My husband was uh, terribly affected. He was, his moods were up and down. He was uh, chronically tired all the time in the house. And I noticed, uh, too, after about, oh, eight, nine months, I, I remember looking in the mirror and just realizing I looked very tired. I had rings under my eyes, and uh, I just didn't look very well and I realized that the house was draining us it was draining me it was draining the kids and it was draining my husband of all our vitality and energy and I thought we have to do something we put the house up for sale we were fortunate to get out the money we put into it and we moved to Vancouver where I intended to carry on my career making television we left our mountain home for the coast on Halloween night A light snow dusted the air. The house looked lovely. It was silent for the moment. The new owners were set to move in the next day. Part of me wanted to stay, to hang on. This place, this kind of house, was pretty much what Anne and I had wanted all these years. Our intention was to put the Bow Valley behind us for good. But these mountains never really leave you. I became obsessed with coming to terms with what had happened. Culture tells me it was a ghost or some such apparition, just like contemporary culture tells people who claim to see lights in the sky that it must have been a flying saucer. Intuition told me to investigate. Diary. Just had a splendid conversation with my sister, Cynthia. Myth is a representation of facts, I said. Facts as they appear to be at the time of cognition without understanding. In Yi Fu Tuan's book, Space and Place, he writes, myths flourish in the absence of precise knowledge. Diary, Edmonton, a meeting. Chris Harlick persuaded Simon Lewis to let me write an outline for the television world music show. Rejecting the outline, Simon said, it reads like you're looking for God. Well, perhaps I am. Maybe that's what's at the source, the flow that feeds the fount of the water. 
Vancouver, on the shore of English Bay near trendy Kitsilano. Father Thomas Berry is surrounded by a small, enthusiastic gathering of admirers. He's got a new book. It's been reviewed and given two thumbs up by the New Age gang that habituates the cafes, book havens, and pleasure shops that line this part of the city. Tom, as he tells us to call him, has an intriguing message. At the present time, we're between stories. The Genesis story that guided us for so long, or the biblical story, is not functioning. We have developed another story of the universe through our empirical inquiry into the universe. My claim is this new story of the universe that we have is the story of a spiritual process as well as a physical process. Everything is present in everything. Every atom is immediately influencing every other atom of the universe, no matter how far distant in time, billions of light years away. And that's one of the ways we know the universe is spiritual. If uh, we are spiritual, then the universe has to be spiritual because... We go later for lunch. The story is everywhere, Tom continues. The old story about who we are and how to live doesn't work anymore, he says. And while we don't yet know what the new story is, we desperately want to find it. Diary. There's a passage in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And the trees clapped their hands. It's also the title of a book written by a Catholic nun in celebration of nature. If only we would take the time to see what is being presented to our senses, rather than interpreting with our mind what we think nature is telling us. Nature is applauding our efforts, she says. Diary. If I had had a heart attack, there's tons of books to consult. Ditto for business information. But for a spiritual crisis? You're on your own. What you get is the Celestine prophecy. Drumbeaters. Hollow advice from the parish priest. And wild women sages with monikers like Starhawk. It's the realm of flakes. The advocates of a... Witches and Goblins Society. I like to swim, and I had a habit of putting in a daily kilometer at a neighborhood pool in Vancouver. Putting one stroke on top of another, I sometimes run a silent mantra through my mind. One time, finished with my swim, I sat quietly on the lip of stairs that descend into the pool. Closing my eyes, I again went into a meditation. I could feel undulating currents of water. Nothing unusual in that. But I also felt the subtle energy of water pulsating in reaction to a swimmer at a considerable distance. I felt that person, got a sense of who they were. The water lapped gently at first, and then radiated vigorously as the swimmer pulled closer. The invisible casts a shadow, I thought. Wait a minute. Perhaps energy casts a shadow. All kinds of energy. Two books really got my attention. Fire in the Brain by Ronald Siegel. It's about hallucinations of all sorts. And another about synesthesia. 
It's a rare neurological condition. One in a hundred thousand experience it, a crossing of the senses, where one sensory stimulus involuntarily produces another. For instance, the taste of chocolate mint caused one subject to feel smooth, cool, vertical columns. In another, the sound of a beeper made her see bright red lightning bolts. Musicians like the Birds' Roger McGuinn claimed to have colored hearing. Mozart claimed that when he heard individual notes, he saw specific colors. Purple was a favorite. To most people today, the first response is, well, this is incredible. How could this be real? And in, that, in fact, that was the, the reaction of my colleagues uh, 10, 15 years ago. Is Dr. Richard Cytoic is on the line. Very different. On the surface, of course, these people are normal. They're very, very bright. They have excellent memories, and they come from all walks of life and hold all sorts of different jobs. And they find it um, strange that they're surprised to discover that the rest of us aren't synesthetic, don't perceive the world in the way that they do. But when you study, let's say, brain metabolism and do psychological kinds of probes, um, indeed their brains are remarkably different from the rest of us. And that's another paradox because the metabolism, the energy flow to certain parts of the brain is so different, and yet they have no clinical symptoms. I mean, they should have, you know, paralysis and blindness or things like that. Um, they seem perfectly normal. So when you, when you answer one question, about five more puzzles pop up. He tells me about Carol Steen, an artist who uses her synesthesia in her work, sculpture and painting. Lives in New York. You should talk to her, he says. I'm intrigued by the idea that something like a sound, for instance, can trigger a hallucination of colors. Maybe I'm a synesthete or something. That might explain the ghost in my basement. In the fall of 1997, I visit Carol Steen at a loft in Manhattan. For me, one of the interesting things in my life was that I needed to have acupuncture treatments. The kind of surprise was that during acupuncture, I discovered that I saw colors, I saw shapes, I saw shapes that would move, they would gather on a, a black background that suddenly changed and burst into this incredible color. And these shapes, which were not completely purely geometric, but very simple, would start to appear. And sometimes they'd go racing across this kind of visual, like a movie screen that I was watching, like a herd of colored shapes. And then they'd disappear, and another herd of colored shapes would come galloping back another way. But once the treatment was over, and it would only last 20 minutes, and the needles would be taken out, the movement would stop, the colors would fade, and all I'd be left with would be a black screen. A blank slate upon which ghosts are written? A scribble screen filled with imagistic shorthand? In my case, Maybe I was merely taking dictation. But who was the author of my apparition? Don, being the individual that he is, pursued this. It became an issue with him. I guess he, you could say he did become uh, obsessed with it to a certain degree because he wanted to get answers to what exactly went on. I was more willing to let the issue go. Don explored this issue far more and pursued it to the nth degree and uh, did come up with some answers. Vancouver, moving around the community of drum beaters and spirit guides. 
Sure, there were charlatans, plenty of those guys, sleazy fellows who aligned the chakras of middle-aged women by sleeping with them. But I also ran into sincere people, explaining as best they could what they knew to be true from experience. The problem was the vocabulary. Words were limited. Limited in the sense of labeling a shared experience. And sense is an important word. Actually, I'll see pictures. I might hear my own voice talking to me, telling me, you know, a message or, or explaining a symbol that I'm seeing. I feel. This is Deborah McGregor. At the time, she ran the Fraser Valley Awareness Center in Vancouver. She calls herself a psychic. Uh, if I go into a room, say, where there's somebody's angry when I get in there, I'll, I'll feel angry, you know, or anxious, uh, sad, melancholy, any of that. Um, how do you define psychic? Uh, somebody that can go beyond the five senses, that information comes from resources that are not in the everyday normal world. How do you explain it? It comes from the etheric. I was intrigued by Deborah's reference to seeing pictures and picking up on emotions, especially in spaces that are charged with intense feelings. There was a clue in this, I thought. Another woman, she only wants to be identified as Heidi, had been troubled by an apparition too. It seemed to follow her around Vancouver. She also complained of a recurring out-of-body experience. I don't know exactly what an out-of-body experience it is. I really haven't read very much on it, basically because when you have these kind of very personal experiences, it's very easy to begin transferring someone else's experience into yours. And I've endeavored to, in a sense, keep mine pure so that I could think about it a bit more and try to understand my experience more clearly. Diary, Vancouver. A mystical experience will always come in the absence of perceptions. The trick, if there is one, is not to think too much. Many of us find it troublesome to be still, to clear the mind of preconceptions and desire, to open up to other possibilities that lay awaiting in ka nada, Portuguese for nothing there. Edmonton. The Ganden Jangsi monks, a group of Tibetan Buddhist overtone singers, were touring Western Canada. I was asked to see if I could put together some media opportunities, so I arranged for the monks to be captured on video. There were piles of people in the television studio. The monks patiently stood inside the bright pools of light that illuminated their mark. I was in my Leonard Cohen outfit, dressed in black. I was near the back of the studio wall with people in front obscuring me. I ought to have been invisible. One of the monks, somehow, made eye contact. It must have been tough for him to see past the bright lights. Then he darted across the studio floor, grabbed me firmly, yet gently, and pulled me down to my knees. He then ground the crown of his head into the top of mine, mumbled a few words, smiled, and returned to his mark. A few minutes later, another monk did the exact same thing. I was bewildered. Why me? It's a recognition, a, a transmission of sorts. Audrey Watson. If a, a high lama rubs his head on yours, he's uh, making a contact with you because he wants you to pick up and realize that he recognizes you. And sort of like 
putting you in the club. During the monk's peace incantation, I felt a wave of nausea and a rush up from my spine to my mouth, and a distinct feeling of wooziness, a feeling of wanting to throw up. Audrey Watson suggests it's an awakening of the unconscious. The sensation removes a blockage. I guess the mind is trying to rid itself of toxins or invasions of mental bacteria and viruses, an attack on the immune system of the unconscious. You know the expression, the room changed when so-and-so walked in? It's true for the Gandon Janxi monks. I followed the monks around for a couple of days in Edmonton and caught up with them a week later in Vancouver. Mundane events seemed to take on great significance. People acted oddly around these guys. Sure, there was the psychology of the moment, but I felt like something very electric was going on. Maybe it was the bonks in the head. Maybe it was just me. Maybe I'm some kind of reception device, a kind of radio for extraordinary transmissions. Diary. A phone call from my sister. Cynthia told me about meeting a kinesiologist from Perry Sound, an elderly gent of 65 or so, who claimed to have performed exorcisms for people haunted by electromagnetic fields. He said the first sign is coldness in certain spots, and that EM energy manifested itself in concentrated hot spots, particularly in mountainous terrain. She had this conversation at Grundy Lake Provincial Park, and he waved his hands over her head, claiming she had a build-up of metal. This guy sounds like a flake. Cynthia then had a long chat with a Bell Telephone billing agent, of all people, about possessions in electromagnetic fields. He claimed that he was possessed when he was 13. Weren't we all? Now, this is interesting. Cynthia recalled her dream of confronting the native man trying to get at her through the window of our haunted house in Canmore. She distinctly recalls having to fight to keep the window latched and the man at bay. That's how they get you, said the telephone billing agent. They confront you in your dreams. That's where they have power something they can't do in reality. Spirits can come back to us in our physical waking presence, and it's not a dream state that we're in. Although I think that there are times that spirits do come back during uh, the time that we are dreaming. Linda Jane. My belief is, is that, and my knowledge is, is that spirits exist on the, in the waking state, that there are physical presence around us. Um, there's ceremonies that are often conducted which call back spirits and the spirits can have uh, a presence in our waking life. Uh, Spirit could, um, for example, make itself visible to a person who didn't originally believe in, in spirits, but the presence of the spirit could be visible to that person. Um, I think that it's a lot easier to uh, see the presence of spirits and to understand spirits if your mind is open to it. In the Bow Valley, there are several vision quest sites. These are the sacred places where young Aboriginal men used to come, alone, usually in a state of deprivation, to find their dreams and write them on the rock. The sites themselves are typically found along geophysical fault lines. One area, 
very close to where I lived, is Grotto Canyon. Along the walls are fading ochre designs, curious-looking things that speak to the space between waking and dreaming. I have been in touch with Charles Tart, the transpersonal psychologist. He suggested there may be a connection between my encounter with an apparition and the mountain locale. He said I should get in touch with two Russian professors. I phoned them. In our travels, we found that uh, certain places on Earth, they have the possibility to enhance meditations. It's becoming easier when people camp on the specific power spots, how we call them, the power spots. Olga Luchakova and her colleague Igor Kangurtsev are professors of philosophy and religion at the California Institute of Integral Studies. They earned their degrees in St. Petersburg, Russia, and have traveled extensively studying mystical traditions and how different regions of the earth affect people's states of mind and their spiritual practices. All people are the subject of this influence, whether they are aware about it or not. Generally, this influence of the earth is acting upon all people. But the majority of people are not aware of that in terms of they do not attribute the state of mind, their state of consciousness, to the area where they are in. I remember being excited by this piece of conversation and by another thread that wound its way into the fabric of my quest. I've been reading about this other guy, Michael Persinger, a scientist, neuroscience actually, and then I heard him on the radio, the old Sunday morning program on the CBC. He was talking about a device he created, a piece of technology he used in his lab that could stimulate the sense of a presence and other ghostly phenomena. The device generated weak pulsed patterns of electromagnetic fields, he said, which were transmitted to a person sitting under this device. What's more, he claimed, electromagnetic fields naturally occurring in the Earth itself were responsible for all kinds of other weird reports, poltergeists, UFOs, even people hearing the voice of God. Dr. Persinger was at Laurentian University. That kind of stunned me, because Laurentian is in Sudbury, my old hometown, in Ontario, the province and place I grew up. I called him. What I'm most interested in is the portions of the brain that generate the experience. My process of research, in fact, our primary operation philosophy is that if something is really true, no amount of challenge will ever change it. We're not interested in demeaning people's beliefs. What we're really interested in is finding out the parts of the brain that mediate the experience. Okay, I said, but what about my ghost? Although I didn't ask him that directly, sort of hinted at it, talked around my personal story by invoking others. Likely the temporal lobes at play, he suggested. Oh yeah, what's that? It's part of our brain. The significance of the temporal lobes in mystical and religious experiences are based upon three factors. Michael Persinger. One, that portions of the temporal lobe, the deep portions of the temporal lobe, contain structures that are key to memory, memory consolidation and the retrieval of memories. After all, who you are are your memories. If we define The temporal lobes are a kind of head office for stored memories and information gleaned from our senses. They're just above our ears, one on each side of the brain. So the importance of the temporal lobe has to do with the three features. Its involvement with language, its involvement with memory, and its involvement with attributing 
positive or negative experiences to sensations. Those three things together basically allow us to have mystical experiences. I arranged to visit Dr. Persinger's lab. I needed to know if I am a temporal lobe personality, the kind of person, according to Laura Pearsall, a friend and former student of Persinger's, who is likely to screech the car to a stop to look at a beautiful sunset. That's me all right, I thought. But do you find yourself moved by it? Find some meaning in the sight and the moment, she asked. Yeah, often I do. I'd like to think I'm witnessing God's handiwork. Does that make me some kind of nut? When the temporal lobes are continuously functioning at a high level, they're prone to kindling. That means stimulation to other parts of the brain will kindle temporal lobe activity. Hence, visual or auditory stimuli will have a corresponding meaningfulness a lot of the time. A gorgeous sunset acquires even greater significance for the temporal lobe personality. People whose temporal lobes are not working at such a high level will probably say, gee, look at that, eh? And continue driving. Far from being crazy, the temporal lobe personalities are the creative ones that find a great deal of meaning in the world. But specifically, I also needed to be sure of the poltergeist, the knockings, objects moving around, the terrible negative feelings that lingered about the house. Was that all in my head? And my wife and friends too? Were we all possessed by overstimulated imaginations? Or am I some kind of magnet for the phenomena, since I was the principal recipient of most of the attention? The answers were lurking in Persinger's research facility, Diary, August 29th, 1997, Laurentian University, first session. Walking into the isolation chamber was a Hollywood experience, a kind of boldly going where I hadn't been before. Having my eyes taped, head mapped with electrodes, then further isolated inside a rejigged motorcycle helmet, wires streaming out in all directions, was kind of neat. Testing one, two, three, hello. Good afternoon, shoppers. The playfulness of my initial babble disguised a genuine worry. What if nothing happens? Diary. Just before the thud of the door locked out the real world, I heard a peculiar ringing, a burst of intertwined harmonics like a cacophonous drop of a xylophone. Can't be certain, but I feel like kind of a tingling along the... The tingling right in the right leg was familiar, as was the shaking from left to right of my eyes. Then came a monochromatic hallucination, eyes just short of materializing into a distinct form. Shadows. Blurs. Okay, de a definite rush there. A blitz of energy right up from the base of my spine through and out the top of my head, a kind of zapping. I'm getting a tingling in my uh, dryness in my throat, and uh, I have to report too that I'm feeling tense for some reason, like there's uh, something behind, uh, kind of a tension behind my, sh my shoulders. Distinct feeling of being watched, like, uh, unpleasant. My guard is up, a feeling something dreadful is about to unfold. I get a kind of a rush. Fear. I've known this fear before. When I was living in my mountain home in Canmore, 
Oh, that's interesting. A... Brief flashes of white light, a muted soapstone color, smudges. Almost like a... Really, mere shadows. Yes, architecture, and with depth, too. Uh, some geometry. I see architecture, gothic-looking stuff, a cathedral-like entranceway. Um, I'm, I'm r r rushing and um, shaking here. It's about here the dreadful feeling begins anew. Woo! Um, a rush of um, cold. Woo! And and also uh, visual effects, uh, like a, it was a pulse of a kind of a um, green light. My shoulders are very tense up to my Panic, ears right now. Discomfort, Just, uh, and twitching, and lapses of focus. Th this is close to the experience I had in the house. Right, what happened? Just this last that. Right, yeah. Well, well, I was definitely seeing eyes there. Very fearful. I'm, I'm, uh, I have to apologize. I'm looking past, I'm trying to look past the fear here. Definitely saw that. That, yes. The, um, it's, I see stars, everything's tingling around. Definitely visual effects. Don't stop this. This, this is uh, getting close to the apparition I saw. The morphing bits of light have can, color, reddish dots in among right the swirl of formless form. My hands are sweaty and my palms are... That's it. Uh, my, my palms are sweating. I'm seeing this, this visual dips and dots. Um, there was some color, but it's this morphous and I am, uh, yeah. I think I found what I was looking for. Okay, Don? Yes, hi. We're, we're coming in, okay? Just relax. Sure, thank you. You made it. That was very interesting. Okay, well, I'm going to give you a questionnaire to fill out. Yeah. Oh. All right, so. Boof. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, do you mind me talking through it? I was just. Uh, Not at all. I mean, uh, most people don't, but. Uh, I, I'm doing it deliberately because I'm just reporting on much experience. In. But there was a period of time where I was completely confused, you know? Like I just could not keep track of anything. And this involuntary spasms was bizarre, you know? Like I was just going like, womp. I have no idea what it looked like over there. But it was that feeling of uh, manipulation, like almost like being a, uh, a string puppet, you know? Like not in control that um, I'd be interested to see what happened if there were any spikes on the EEG there. Right. Well, we'll show you After the fact, you know. Yeah. Or if this is just all my imagination. Uh, no. No, no he you. said. A decisive sounding <laughs> no. The session confirmed a hunch that my Canmore ghost was literally in my head. I had recognized, recognized, the unsettling experience in a lab in Sudbury, thousands of kilometers from the Rockies. What other ghosts are in that machine and in the landscape? What on earth does it all mean? Haunted House, Haunted Mind, Part 2. There are three more episodes in the series. If you haven't already told your friends, ask them to subscribe to the podcast. And be sure you go to the website, where you can download the companion ebook to the show. 
There's lots to read, as well as new information about my haunted house in the Rockies. Go to the website, canmoreghost.ca. That's canmoreghost, all one word, dot ca. Haunted House, Haunted Mind is a presentation of appropriate entertainment. I'm Don Hill. Make sure you tune in again for part three, which will take you a little further along the road to High Strange.